Well, good morning, Centennial family and uh, others who are joining us on the live stream. Uh, we're thrilled that you're with us. We're grateful to be together in this way and to center ourselves around God's word this morning. Hey, if you've been tracking with us, you know that we've been in a sermon series in the book of Acts that started at the beginning of last fall. It took a little break for Advent, but it's been a long series, and I know that probably some of you think it's never going to end, but that's not true. Uh, next week, we'll actually be wrapping up this series, but look at, for a lot of weeks now, what we've been doing is we've been moving through the book of Acts is we've essentially been following the ministry of the Apostle Paul as he has traveled all over the eastern Mediterranean to preach the gospel. Now, there's something about travel, isn't there? I mean, it's, it seems like it's almost impossible to, to travel for any length of time without encountering some kind of an unexpected challenge. I mean, Paul encountered a lot of these. I'm sure ones that weren't even recorded in Scripture. But look, at, we, we experience the same kind of things, don't we? I mean, think about times that you've traveled and maybe you encountered a detour that you weren't expecting or maybe some kind of a major delay, say at an airport or something that causes just a major disruption in your travel plans. Well, here's what I'd like you to think about for a moment. When that happens, how do you feel? And, and how do you think about that situation when you're in the midst of it. You know, Linda and I have had plenty of these over the years. Uh, we've been blessed to have traveled to a lot of different places in the world through our ministry, some involving some pretty challenging travel. But, but the little story I want to tell you here doesn't really come from that. It comes from a trip that we made to Italy a few years back it had nothing to do with ministry. Actually, this was a, a celebratory trip. I had just come through a two-year struggle with cancer. We were just excited to be able to do this kind of thing again. And I remember on this particular day that I'm thinking about, we were traveling from way up in the north of Italy down to the south. And our itinerary involved taking a lot of different trains. And I had planned out this itinerary, but really had not left a lot of margin for error. Now, that was a mistake on my part. I should have known better because trains in Italy don't run like trains in Switzerland. And our travel plans started to go bad, like almost from the beginning. The very first train we were on, after we leave the station, we noticed it's running ridiculously slow. And Linda and I were talking, go, this, this can't possibly be right. There, there must be some kind of a problem. Well, we, we found out what the answer was when just a few minutes later, the train completely broke down. So now we're stranded. Well, after a little while, they sent a substitute train. It picked everybody up. And so now we're off and running. And fortunately, this was a faster train, which was good because at the next station, we were due to change trains to catch a train that would then take us to Rome. And so as we're moving along, I'm looking at my watch and I'm starting to panic because I'm thinking this is, this is going to be really, really tight. So before we ever got to the station, I'm talking with my wife, Lynn, and saying, look, you know, here's what we need to do. 
We've got to be standing at the door to the train as it pulls into the station. We've got to have all our bags with us. Soon as the door is open, we need to hop off. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to sprint over to the monitors that have the schedules so I can figure out which track our next train is leaving from. And then we'll just see if we can make it. So, so that's what's going on here. So now I'm standing in front of the screen and I'm looking really quickly for a train leaving to Rome and I find one but it doesn't make any sense. Because it says, first of all, the train is leaving like right about that minute. Uh, but it tells me that the, the train is supposed to be departing from the very track that we just rolled on. And I, you know, I, I looked over and of course there wasn't a train to Rome there, there was just this substitute train that we had just rolled in on. So I'm looking over the screen again and thinking, is there another train to Rome? Then it dawns on me. The substitute train that had picked us up, the one we had just arrived on, was the exact train that we were supposed to be transferring to at this station. And I realized that, so I spin over in Linda's direction and I say, we need to get back on that train, that's our train. But before the words get out of my mouth, the doors to the train close. And it rolls out of the station. And it was the sickest feeling because we'd been on the right train all along. Well, you know, we eventually reached our destination just much, much later than planned. And, and I don't think it cost us anything other than a lot of needless panic. But, but it's not always that way, is it? Sometimes disruption to our travel plans can be a lot more serious. And we're gonna see that in the Apostle Paul's life today in the story that's contained in Acts chapter 27. Now let me just give you a little bit of background here. The last few weeks, we've seen how Paul has been through a series of trials. The Jewish authorities have brought some accusations. He's down in the city of Caesarea, and he's there basically under house arrest for about two years. And then in the midst of this process, during this time, Paul appeals his case to Caesar's court in Rome. And so at some point after that two years, Paul is then sent off to Rome. And Acts 27 and the first 10 verses of chapter 28 are a firsthand account of his sea voyage to Rome. I say firsthand because Luke, who writes the book of Acts, was actually accompanying Paul on this trip. And what we see is that this trip turns out to be like the biggest detour that you could ever imagine. You know, it's, it's literally months before Paul finally reaches Rome. And we need to remember, reaching Rome had long been a goal for Paul. Three years earlier, Paul had written a letter to the Romans, and he had told them, look, I'm planning to come and visit you. And we learn there in this letter that he wants to use Rome as a springboard to launch new ministry into the western part of the empire. Up to this point in time, he spent his whole life ministering in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And of course, he also wanted to minister to the Christians there in Rome. So this was Paul's focus. He'd been thinking about it for a long time. And look, it was a good ministry strategy. And it was clearly God's will 
In the last time that Paul had been in Jerusalem, back in Acts chapter 23, God assured him that he would be a witness for Christ in Rome. So Paul considered this to be a part of his mission. It was a major focus and ambition for Paul to reach Rome. But here's the thing. When he wrote that letter to the Romans, there would have been no way that Paul could have imagined how difficult the path was going to be that would eventually take him to Rome. It was going to involve riots at the temple, you know, trials, imprisonment, delays. And then he certainly couldn't have envisioned that once he finally had his ticket to head to Rome, that he would almost lose his life at sea. You know, in the 18th century, it was popular for wealthy Europeans to take a long trip to travel around notable cities in Europe. And this was famously called the Grand Tour experience. Well, Paul's about to make a long trip around the Mediterranean, and I think we could probably appropriately call this the Grand Detour experience for Paul. So, so what can we learn from these detours and delays on Paul's journey to Rome? What in the world did this have to do with Paul's ministry and his focus? How should we think about things like this when they occur in our own lives? Well, that's what I'd like us to consider in this message this morning. Now, listen, this is a long passage from Acts, and we're not going to have time to read every verse in this text, but it's important that we follow the narrative, and so that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. So remember, Paul's a prisoner. He's beginning this journey, so let's now read from the beginning of Acts chapter 27, it says this. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adamidium, about to sail to ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. So, so here in these first few verses, we're introduced to those who are traveling with Paul. Paul's a prisoner, so there's a, a centurion there and his soldiers. They're escorting Paul to Rome, but not only Paul. There are other prisoners also bound for Rome on this ship. Of course, there was the crew. And then we see that Paul had some traveling companions. There was this other disciple named Aristarchus from Thessalonica. And then there was Luke. Now, Luke's not named in the text, but he refers to himself whenever he uses the plural pronoun, you know, we or us, he's included there. And we learn later on in this passage that in total, there were 276 people traveling to Rome. Now, here's a map of the first part of their journey. This is described in the next few verses. We won't read them, but you can see that they start out down south here in Caesarea, that was in Judea. They make a stop at Sidon, and then when they leave Sidon, Luke writes that they were hindered by the winds. The winds were against them. And what he means here is that instead of sailing west, that would be the direction of Italy, they have to continue north, and then they, they turn west along the coastline. So they're sailing pretty close to the coastline. Well, it's because of the winds. So they stop at this port called Myra, 
And so picking up at the end of verse 5, it says this, We landed at Myra and Lycia, and there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. So evidently the first ship they were on wasn't going all the way to Italy, so they changed ships here in Myra. And it, it, we're told here in this verse that they get onto an Alexandrian ship. Now we learn later on in the text that this was an Alexandrian grain vessel from Egypt. Now historians tell us that Egypt supplied Rome with 150,000 tons of wheat every year. So this just wasn't one ship. This ship was part of a whole fleet of grain vessels because this was just a major, major business supplying wheat to Rome. Now, if you stop and think about this for just a minute, it, it, it kind of messes with our minds because, think about this, what, what this means is that first century Italian pasta was made from Egyptian wheat. I mean, who could have imagined that? You know, it makes you wonder, uh, did they also use hummus instead of tomato sauce? You know, I don't know. This is one of those deep biblical mysteries that just goes unexplained. But let's continue with our story here with verse 7. It says this, now they've left Myra on this new ship. And Luke says, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, so he means further westward travel toward Italy, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. So here's what's happening. Luke tells us that as they start out, they're making really slow headway. Why? Because at this time of year, in this part of the Mediterranean, the prevailing winds blew from the west. They're going straight into them. So it took them days to travel not too far of a distance until they reached this point called Snidus. This is the southwest corner of what would be Turkey today. So if you can envision continuing on to Italy, what does that mean? It means at this point they don't have the shelter of land. They're beginning to sail out across the Aegean Sea, and here's what happened. Now they're, they're kind of exposed from the northward direction. They get hit with this northwesterly wind, which pushes them further to the south. And so to avoid getting blown even further off course, they tuck themselves under the shelter of the island of Crete, sail along the southern coast to this port that Luke calls Fair Havens. So let's continue on now with verse 9. This is what Luke writes. He says, Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So here's what we need to understand. We've already seen that they've been hindered in their travels by unfavorable winds. Now here's the reason why. Because in this part of the Mediterranean in the first century, Sailing on the sea became quite dangerous in the first half of September because of bad weather. And almost all sea travel completely shut down by the time you reached the end of October because the storms were so bad at that point they could actually sink a ship. So when is this voyage happening? Well, Luke tells us here. 
it was already after the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement's a Jewish religious festival. It's based on the lunar calendar. It's always in the fall, but scholars have figured out, and in this particular year, that means this would have been a holiday that happened somewhere in early October. So here's the situation. There wasn't a lot of sailing going on this late in the year. I mean, this could have literally been maybe the last grain vessel that was even trying to get to Rome. Most ships would have been finding harbors at this point in time and spending the whole winter there. What I mean is sailing did not resume again until like late February or early March at the earliest. So things are getting quite dangerous, and they all would have known this. But look at what Paul has to say if we pick up with the latter part of verse 9. It says, so Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. So here's their attended, intended route to, to leave Fair Havens to go further to the west under Crete, trying to reach this other harbor called Phoenix. But you can see after traveling just a few miles, they round a little cape, and then what? Then they're crossing this large bay, and this exposed them to the wind. And Luke tells us what? That, that they're hit by a wind. So look, Paul had already advised them not to do this. He'd already told them, guys, I sense that this could be really, really risky. Now, we don't know whether this was some kind of specific foreknowledge that God had given Paul, whether this was just based on Paul's own experience sailing on the Mediterranean, his own intuition. Look, it's not like Paul was a novice when it came to sea travel. He wasn't a captain or anything, but he had traveled a lot by sea. And we know in 2 Corinthians that by this point in time, Paul had already been shipwrecked three times. So look, we can't fault Paul for, for being a little bit nervous about continuing on in such bad weather. But the centurion, who had the final say here because of his imperial authority, with the others decided, we're going to go for it. We're going to try to get to Phoenix because they're talking about spending the whole winter there. So, you know, I don't know all the factors that went into this decision. Could be that there, you know, maybe there weren't any good pizza joints in Fair Havens. And, you know, Phoenix had a lot better nightlife as well as a better harbor. Whatever the reason, they decide to go for it. And it wasn't such a great decision. <laughs> so let's read what happened, picking up with verse 13. It says this then. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. So this is what, what happened. They, they rounded that corner, the little gentle south wind went away, and then they're broadsided by this wind, a ferocious wind. This wind 
had a particular name. It's translated here as the Northeaster because it came from that direction. But the, the Greek word that is used to translate the term for this storm literally translated means an eastern wind of typhoon force. And that's what Luke says, right? Hurricane force is how it is translated. So I don't want you to think that this was just like a strong wind that hit them. This is a major storm. Now, this might sound odd to you to have a, a storm of hurricane force, but hurricanes actually do happen on the Mediterranean Sea. It's that large of a sea. And so they tried to turn into the storm. That wasn't working. And Luke tells us that they are caught in this storm. That means the storm blew them off course to the south and to the west. So it didn't just blow over them. It wasn't one of those kind of storms. It didn't go away. No, they're caught and they're being moved right in the center of the storm. The next four verses tell us how bad the voyage gets at this point. Again, I'm not going to read these verses for the sake of time, but here's what happens. The sailors are forced to, to run ropes under the hull of the ship, trying to pull those planks and beams more tightly together. This probably means at this point they were already taking on water. And then the sailors feared that they might get pushed too far to the south, where the danger was running up on some treacherous reefs off the north shore of North Africa. So after a few days, what are they doing? It says they're jettisoning cargo. They're trying to, to lighten the ship. That's how bad the storm was. When we get to verse 20, it just sort of summarizes their plight. It says this. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Their situation was really bleak. We, we just try to have, need to try to imagine what would that have been like to have been on a vessel in the first century on the Mediterranean, caught up in a storm that was something like a hurricane. I mean, they, they could have been looking at waves that looked like this. There would have been a lot of seasickness Luke, Luke writes a little bit later on that they didn't eat for days. Why? Probably because the sailors were so busy just trying to keep the ship afloat. And practically speaking, I imagine you couldn't cook in a violent storm like this, right? We see that the, the sailors are doing everything humanly possible to save themselves. They're girdling the ship. They're probably bailing water. They're throwing cargo overboard tells us they're, they're dragging sea anchors. But all of the combined experience and strength of this crew wasn't working. It wasn't enough. And then the storm was so intense, so dark, that it tells us they couldn't see the sun or the stars for days. What does that mean? It means they didn't know where they were. It was all darkness and disorientation and a raging storm. Now, we may not have, ever have to face a, a raging storm like this at sea, but I think most of us know something about 
being caught up in the midst of the storms of life. And even though the, the physical reality is quite different, the, the same dynamics are in play. The same kind of things that we see those sailors doing, we experience in our own lives, don't we? I'm talking about just, just trying to hold things together and make it through. I'm talking about using all of your energy and all of your skill to try to make this problem go away, but without success. Sometimes the, the stress gets so bad that we, we neglect our self-care. And if this kind of thing goes long enough and, and deep enough, then darkness, emotional darkness can begin to set in, leading to place of hopelessness now listen hopelessness is a scary place to be some of you have been there others of you have walked alongside friends or or loved ones who are at such a dark place they've lost hope some of you are in the midst of a storm right now and we know as Christians that the Jesus has the power to just speak the word and calm the storm. We see this quite literally, don't we, in the Gospels on, on the Sea of Galilee? Jesus does that. And, and don't you think that Paul and the other brothers on this ship were, were crying out just as fervently to Jesus to, to calm the storm? But God didn't calm this storm. Sometimes God chooses to take us through the storm instead of rescuing us from the storm. Sometimes it may be that having our character and our faith built through trials is actually more beneficial for us than being awed by some great miracle. But regardless of the particulars of a circumstance that you might find yourself in on a detour or caught up in a storm in life, here's a question I want to ask you. Can you, have you sensed God at work in the midst of that situation? God at work in your life. God at work through your life. Can you, have you leaned into the promises of God to help carry you through that situation. Listen, we all need hope in these sorts of situations. And the kind of hope that I'm talking about is not wishful thinking. It's not, I'm not talking about positive thoughts. I'm talking about the kind of hope that is grounded in the fact that as believers, we belong to God. That as believers, we, we can lay hold of the, the promises that God has given us in his word. Look, I want to take a look at a couple of other scriptures here. First from Isaiah chapter 43. Verse 1 says this. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. You are mine. Now, this, this text is speaking about Israel. 
But we have to recognize as believers, the New Testament tells us that, that we've been grafted into the same reality, the same promise. And here's the promise. God created you. God redeemed you. God chose you. You're, you're His. And the bedrock of our hope in these crisis situations is based on who we belong to, the fact that God has said to you and I, you are mine. And then God makes this promise to those who belong to him. Look how it continues in the very next verse. God says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. So God doesn't always promise us immediate rescue from the storm, but he promises to always be with us in the midst of the storm. Now, friends, this is God's word to us. This is a promise that you can lay hold of that won't fail. Psalm 130, verse 5 says this, In his word I put my hope. And listen, this is exactly where Paul anchored his hope in the midst of this perilous situation, in the fact that he belonged to God and in the promise of God's word to him. That's what we read in the very next part of the narrative. So let's continue on with verse 21. It says this, After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men should have taken my advice, and to not sail from Crete, and then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. You see, Paul didn't need to fear this storm. Why? Because God had given this promise to him. God had spoken this word to him that he was going to be rescued and everybody on the ship, and he stood up before these other men and said, I believe that promise. That's where his hope was anchored. But look, there's more to it than that. Another aspect of the source of Paul's hope came from his identity. And here in this text, we see something about Paul's core identity. Verse 23 Paul says he was spoken to by an angel of the God to whom I belong. Paul knew he belonged to God. His security was foremost in his relationship with Christ. Now, he had this wonderful promise of survival, but I'm convinced that even if God hadn't promised rescue from this storm, it wouldn't have shaken Paul's hope. Why? Because of what Paul tells us in places like Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Two verses later, verse 23, he says, To depart and be with Christ is better by far. Now, that is real hope 
where it doesn't matter if you live or if you die because you know the one that you belong to. And that's where your hope and security is found. Now, starting with the very next verse and continuing all the way to the end of this chapter, we learn that this ship was caught up in this storm for 14 long days. Can you imagine that? And at the end of that time, the sailors sense that they're approaching some land. Now, it's the middle of the night. They can't see anything. They probably can hear waves crashing on something. So they take some measurements. And sure enough, the sea is getting shallower. So now they're afraid because they can't see anything. They might run aground. So they drop some anchors and they wait for morning. And when it's dawn, they can see a beach. So now they're thinking, we've, we've got it made. You know, all we have to do is just sail up to the beach and everybody can just step off the ship. Maybe, maybe we don't even have to get wet. Well, that was not to be. Why? Because on this voyage, if it could go wrong, it did go wrong. So they, they try to sail to the beach, but what happens? They strike a, a sandbar offshore and they get stuck. Now the storm is still raging. And if you're in the middle of a, of a storm on a ship that's not anchored, you're just moving with the waves. But when you get stuck on a sandbar, what happens? The waves just start to pound the ship. And it just destroys the ship, and all the cargo is lost. But, just like God promised Paul, all 276 people on board get to shore safely. Now, here's the question. If we step back from this, where in the world are they at this point? Listen, this storm had driven that ship 475 nautical miles. They, they shipwrecked on the tiny island of Malta. This is some 50 miles or so to the south of Sicily. Interestingly, the, the name of the island Malta is derived from an ancient Phoenician word that means refuge. So aptly named. You know, this was a place of refuge for all the men on that ship. And just to kind of give you the right picture, fortunately, it wasn't like they had landed on Gilligan's Island. You know, this is not some uncharted island out in the ocean. Malta has been inhabited for thousands of years. So as we read into chapter 28, what we see is that the islanders welcome them, they, they care for them, and the ship's party spends the next three months on Malta. They're wintering there before they can travel on safely to Rome. So good grief, they've been at sea for weeks. Now three more months wasted on Malta, right? Is this what Paul thought? Is Paul twiddling his thumbs? Is Paul thinking, you know, I wonder if I can get a refund, you know, on my fare here. No, Paul is continuing active ministry. Where we read that, that he healed the father of the governor, and then word gets out on the island, and he heals many others. Though Luke doesn't tell us, I, I think it would be safe for us to assume that, that Paul would have continued to preach the gospel. He did that everywhere he went. So the ministry continued for Paul. Now, in the last section of the book of Acts, which we will cover next week, we learn that Paul indeed eventually makes it to Rome. So that's a good thing. 
But, but in this last part of my message, here's what I want to do. I just want to ask the question, how should we think about this whole you know, unexpected journey on the part of, of Paul? What's really going on here? You know, Paul couldn't have imagined when he stepped onto the deck of that first ship in Caesarea that it was going to be like four months before he ever walked into the city of Rome. You know, most detour signs look like this, don't they? We've all seen them. But Paul's detour sign probably looked more like this, right? I mean, it was crazy. He was all over the place. So how are we to, to think about this? What has really happened in this story? Was, was this just the result of a mistaken decision? Or was this actually part of a divine master plan? Is Acts chapter 27 just a, a tragic story of a shipwreck? Or should we think about this as possibly being Paul's fourth missionary journey. Think about what God accomplished through Paul on this detour. Paul was a great source of hope and encouragement for everybody on that ship in the midst of that storm. Paul was a powerful witness for God. Think of how that might have impacted these sailors as they saw Paul speak God's word and then saw it come about. God gave Paul a healing ministry on the island of Malta. And I'm sure that at a personal level, Paul's own faith was strengthened through this whole experience. So look, we think about these detours, and I think we, we perceive them incorrectly. So often we consider these sorts of disruptions in our lives to be just that, just distractions that we have to push through and then get on with what God wants. But in reality, so often when we're on these detours, they're actually a part of God's design for our ministry. Think about other examples that we have in the Bible of what we might call detours or delays. You've got Jacob spending 14 years serving Laban. Joseph spending years imprisoned in Egypt. Moses spending years in the desert before he's called at the burning bush. Ruth sojourning in Moab. And don't forget, don't forget Jonah, because he has his own little detour on the Mediterranean Sea. Not quite as long as Paul's, right? But in each of these situations, we know from these stories that God was at work in the lives of these people. He was preparing them. In some cases, he was right in that moment working through them to bless others. But with all of these stories, what do we find? The very next season, we see powerful ministry. We see witness. We see great blessing that comes out of these detours. So what about you? And what, what kind of detours or, or storms have you faced in your own experience? You know, maybe for you, it's, it's hopes and dreams that just haven't ever been realized. Maybe some crisis has, has completely derailed your plans. Maybe, maybe yours is the result of some kind of a, a personal failure. Or, or maybe it has nothing to do with you. Maybe it all was the result of somebody else's actions or bad decisions and you just 
reap the negative consequences. Whatever the situation is, we need to be encouraged, and I think we're challenged by the example of Paul that we see here in Acts 27 in the beginning of 28. Let's remember at the very beginning, Paul had some companions with him, didn't he? And I think that we all would do well to have some faith friends around us as we journey through life. The Christian life was never designed to be lived like, you know, the Lone Ranger. There, there's nothing heroic about that. We were designed to have this sort of fellowship. And so I would encourage you, if you don't already have traveling companions along on your journey, to, to try to find and develop that. Make that a matter of prayer. And then like Paul, let's remember our identity in Christ. That's something that can never be shaken. It can't be taken away from you. And then we got to hold on to God's word and those promises, especially where God tells us things like he's going to be with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. We can lean on that. Now, to close my message this morning, I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 43. And I've just selected some verses from this chapter. I want to read them to us one more time. Ask you just to reflect on these words. Now let's remember, this is a prophet speaking. Uh, he was speaking to Israel at a particular point in history in their specific situation. But I believe that these words are also intended to bring us hope today. As God's children living today, they're meant to lift our eyes to the one who loves us, to the one who's with us, to the one who's going to make a way for us. So would you now just listen to these words from God? He says, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. It now springs up. Can you perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Can we just pray together? Our Lord and our God, thank you for the hope that you've given each of us. First of all, we thank you, not just for creating us, but for choosing us, for saying to every one of us that are believers in Christ, you are mine. Thank you that that kind of hope cannot be assailed by any kind of storm. And God, we thank you for the richness of the promises contained in your word. Some spoken very specifically at times to our situation, as was Paul's case. Others that just endure 
Help us to latch on to these promises. Would you give us the strength, the encouragement we need to weather the storms and the detours of life? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.